Let's pray together. God, would that be our song forever and forever? That you are glorified forever, you're lifted high. Death has no sting, it's defeated, it's over because of what you've done on the cross. And so we sing, hallelujah, God be praised. How sweet it's gonna be forever and forever in eternity to just to mirror that back to you and say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Father, we love you. We are so grateful for what you've done on our behalf. We could never pay you back. And so we say here, take our lives, take us and use us. We love you as your children. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. You guys can take a seat. Well, I wore it when I was in eighth grade. First week of school. I remember it because I had to think about it before I put it on. I had, I had gotten it from a shop down in Canton, and I wondered what my friends were going to think. I really kind of hoped that they would notice. On the front, it said, Lord's Gym. Kind of a parody of Gold's Gym, something I'm clearly very familiar with. And it had a picture of Jesus bench pressing a cross. And on the back, in big bold letters, it said, his pain, your gain. And it had this kind of gnarly picture of like a hand with a, a spike being driven through it and like blood gushing down and like, oh man, it was so sweet. And I'm not sure like if I just couldn't bring myself to wear the Metallica shirts that my friends were wearing with like all the, all the skulls and you know, hardcore stuff. Or if this was like my slightly more sanitized attempt at being cool, you know? But I really, really hoped that they would notice. Wow. Ozzy Osbourne wears one around his neck. Justin Timberlake has a five-inch one tattooed on his left shoulder. It's become an architectural feature, a piece of jewelry, and a bumper sticker. The cross is everywhere, and it's nowhere. Last week, we left off in Mark 15, and Jesus is beaten within an inch of his life. He's got a crown of thorns that has been mashed into his scalp, and he's got a robe draped over his bloodied, lacerated back, and no one is on his side. No one. Mark 15. Whether you see it on a t-shirt, a bicep, or dangling from a necklace, there's something that you need to understand, and here it is. What you believe about your life determines what you will do with Jesus' death. What you believe about your life determines what you will do with Jesus' death. So join me in Mark 15. And we're going to start in verse 21. Mark 15, 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, 
which means place of the skull. So it's about 8 a.m. on Friday, and Jesus is en route to the place where he will be crucified. This has been brewing for about the last 10 hours, ever since Judas betrayed Jesus in the garden the night before. Simon of Cyrene, a seemingly peripheral character in this whole scene, is just in town for Passover with his family. And he's drafted from the crowd to help Jesus out, who at this point, because of blood loss, is too weak to carry his own cross beam. The cross beam, the horizontal part of the cross, was between seven and eight feet long, likely, and weighed about 100 pounds. It was like carrying a chest of drawers on your back. It was awkward, painful, obscenely heavy, difficult for a healthy man to carry, much less someone in Jesus' weakened, bloodied state. Verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. Wine mixed with myrrh, a common sedative. It's like mixing $8 Walmart wine with NyQuil. It's not what you want to do. Nasty stuff. And it's likely that these guys offered this to him, not out of any kind of compassion, but out of a sense that this sedative might bring about a last hour confession of fraud from Jesus, the same way a bottle of wine might loosen the lips a little bit. The fact that Jesus didn't take it means two things. One, he promised he wouldn't at the Last Supper. Remember that? Where he said, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until I come back and I get you. And so the fact that he refuses it says he's even more concerned about keeping his promise than he is about dulling his pain. But secondly, probably more important, I think, Jesus wanted to be mindful of what he was about to do. He wanted to be fully aware of what the next several hours were going to look like and and feel like. More on that later. Verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. It's common practice back then. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. The terseness of this section in Greek is really, really striking. And you even see it in the translation, if you've got a great translation. So pay attention to that. Did you catch it? Mark's audience are Romans, and Romans like action movies, okay? Romans are born identity type people. They're not pride and prejudice type people, and they want action. They want to see things move along. Did you notice those short, like, Hemingway-like statements? It's just these ands, and this happened, and this happened. Just move the action along. And if you go all the way back to verse 21, take a look in your Bible how many ands there are. There's a slew of them. There's eight of them, like staccato, focused still shots in the rolling film of the crucifixion. Mark wants us and his readers to know that this whole thing happened quick. This was not a merciful death. It's important to understand what's happening here. And just a quick heads up. I'm going to read something in a little bit, and it's not going to be pleasant. Crucifixion was a death from any angle. 
The victim could die by blood loss, asphyxiation, dehydration, or given the amount of time that many victims were left exposed to the elements, even infection or sepsis. In his book, The Crucifixion of Jesus, physician C. Truman Davis describes the scene like this. I put it into my words, but his words do the trick. Simon is ordered to place the cross beam on the ground, and Jesus is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the rough wood. The legionnaire, the soldier, feels for the depression at the front of his wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The cross beam is then lifted into place at the top of the vertical beam. The left foot is pressed backwards against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is being driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. As Jesus slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, fiery pain shoots along his fingers and up his arms. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over his muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it cannot be exhaled. Imagine what that would feel like. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Spasmatically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. Deep crushing pain as the chest slowly fills with fluid and begins to compress the heart. Now it's almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood through the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The body of Jesus is now an extremist, and he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. Everybody do something with me. Just breathe in. Breathe out. That would have been too much for the creator of the universe. Here's the thing. When I read that, and I read that dozens of times in preparation for this morning, and I slowed down to really understand what's going on, I can barely stomach it. Verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come on down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. What you believe about your life determines what you do with Jesus' death. Three types of people here. First one, the passers-by. See them? The passers-by. Similar to seeing a roadside accident. They're on their way somewhere else, and they slow down just long enough to crane their necks and kind of take in the scene. Like it's morbidly interesting. It's a curious thing, isn't it, that when we see somebody pulled over, like say on Cleveland Avenue, you stop for a bit and you go like, confession, right? You do it. Come on. And we do it for one reason, because we're looking for quick evidence that would make justification for our own curiosity, right? You look and you say something like this. You go, yeah, she looks like the kind of girl who would text while driving. Yeah, he looks like the kid that would be speeding in a 35. What an idiot. Serves you right. That's the spirit here. It's easy for passersby to make judgments when they see themselves as detached from the situation. And the pride that sleeps just beneath the surface of our hearts enjoys its quick flare at justice served to the offender because for the moment, the spotlight is off of us. So they shake their heads. Told you so. Then there's another group that joins in, the chief priests and the scribes. These guys, they're a trip. These guys were masters at projecting outward dignity. I mean, their clothes were ironed, their stride was perfect. The Dowager Countess of Downton Abbey, not like I watched that show, has nothing on these guys, all right? Prim and proper to the hilt. Man card revoked. But here, with their arch enemy finally exposed for public ridicule, all of that projection falls like a drape. And their hearts and their motivations are seen for what they really are. These guys were supposed to be the spiritual caregivers of Israel, right? These guys were the guys that were supposed to represent God's heart for his people. Look how far they've strayed from God's heart. It's worth noting that while the passers-by address Jesus himself, these guys are limited by their own cowardice. Did you catch it? They don't even talk to Jesus. They can't even address him. They talk to others about him. Cowards. They mock Jesus' intent. He doesn't really want to save you or else he'd come down. He's just another radical who wants a small band of sycophants to follow him around for his little moment in the sun. So much for that. And there's the third group, the robbers or the people on the guys on either side. No doubt fueled by a hope for personal deliverance. Men on either side join in. And at some point, Mark doesn't give us the details. One of them has a change. You read about it in the other gospels. And Luke, Luke says, one of them turns around and says, Hey, no, 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 no. We are being persecuted for our crimes, which we deserve. This guy did nothing. Verse 33. 
And it was the sixth hour. That was noon. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it, probably thought he was hallucinating, said, behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with some sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see if Elijah will come down or come and take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing them saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. That idea about the curtain being torn in two on its own had to be scary. Could you imagine if you were in the temple at the time that thing happened? The curtain separated the Holy of Holies where God was and everything out here where man was. And you don't go in there. It's not your place, right? Could you imagine being in the temple and all of a sudden, top to bottom, curtain torn in two. The divide between God and man is over because Jesus just died. There's a lot more we could say there, but let's go on. 42. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation... That is, before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, fascinating phrase there, isn't it? Took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, that'd be Jesus' half-brother, saw where he was laid. So that's it. It's over. Done. Done. So let me ask one nagging question that we're probably too reverent to ask. Was all of this really necessary? I mean, all the blood and the gore and the pain, like why? Why did Jesus want to stay mindful during his death? Why did God need this from his son? Why didn't God the Father just say, you know what, guys, we're good. Just go love your neighbor. (laughs) Done. Why? Answer. Because Brandon Marshall has a sin problem. And Dan Clancy has a sin problem. And Mark and Lauren and Mike and Lori and Steve and Sue and Bill, we all have a sin problem. We are the problem. And if we don't get that, this just looks like a horror movie. So a long time ago, Adam and Eve in the garden, right? God created a perfect world. He put two people in and he gave them one rule. He said, there's a tree in the middle and there's a piece of fruit on it. You can do anything you want in this garden. Don't eat the fruit. And what did our spiritual great, 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 great grandparents do? One thing they weren't supposed to do. They said, 
I don't think I believe him. What does God know anyway? Maybe it's better if we trust what we think instead of what God thinks. I don't believe him. And so they took the fruit and they ate and we have inherited that curse. It's like a splinter that's so deep into your palm you can't get it out. We fell. And don't think for a minute that if you were there you would have done anything different. Because we do the same thing every day. And God says, my people, my children who I love so much, you've tried so hard for centuries and even millennia. He says, look at you. You've tried so hard to make it better, but you can't fix it on your own. So I'm going to step in and I'm going to fix it myself. And so God the Father sends God the Son in a little out of the way place with no fanfare except for some shepherds. And he was born at the right time and he grew up and lived a sinless life and he died a deplorable death. Writing in the 8th century B.C. 8th century B.C. That's a long time before the cross. The prophet Isaiah writes this. You don't have to turn here, but it's Isaiah 53 if you want to write it down. Here's how Isaiah describes the cross. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, as if to say we didn't get it. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought our peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. Now here it is. This is the most indicting verse against humanism in the world today. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've all messed it up. Each one has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God needed a spotless lamb, perfect sacrifice, and Jesus fit the bill. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. What a detail! With a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And if you ever wonder if God loves you, okay, this next verse is going to rattle your cage. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. That's us. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities or sin. So the question isn't, Jesus, why did you do this? The question is, Jesus, why did you do this for me? In light of that, there's four things we need to consider. Four effects of the cross. So for all of you who are looking at your outline going, he's been going for 15 minutes and I don't have a blank to fill in. Here you go. Four effects of the cross. First one. The cross demands my response. 
The cross demands my response. You can be indifferent about a lot of things in life. Pancakes versus waffles. Don't care. Starbucks versus Dunkin'. Doesn't matter. What kind of operating system your phone uses? Really not that important. But the cross is the one thing on which you must have an opinion. You cannot be indifferent. We don't get an opt-out or phone a friend. And it must be your opinion. You must decide. You don't inherit it from somebody else. You don't get it by osmosis. It is your opinion. So here are a few options for an opinion. First one, shock. Simple shock. This could be your first response, I'd say. If you were Simon of Cyrene, okay, from the crowd, just this guy in town with his family, plucked at random to get involved in this bloody drama that's coming down Main Street. What's Simon of Cyrene feeling? Shock. Like, why? Why does this have to happen to this man? Why? He was so good and so innocent and so pure. He didn't do anything wrong. What kind of a hack trial was that? Why? This is so wrong. And I would venture to say that if you're in touch with your humanity at all, there's at least some part of you that feels shock by the events of the crucifixion. Because it's gruesome and it's horrible. If you would have seen it, you would have thrown up. Your stomach would have soured, you would have tried to avert your eyes to look somewhere else, and you would have wretched at what you saw. Shock. But while shock is a very appropriate and very human response, it's ultimately incomplete. Here's a second option, horror. Here's another response. If you like shock, there's horror for you. Beyond the shock, which is a little detached from reality, horror kind of moves you a little bit closer. And I think this would be like John. John, who knew Jesus. He was likely among the youngest of the disciples, having to see this right before his eyes. He's the only disciple that's at the cross, by the way. The rest of them have scattered like children. And John sees this, his best friend, crucified. Horror. John's soul ringing in disbelief at what he's seeing happening to his best friend. Where do I go? What do I do? This man was my life. What am I supposed to do? My world is turned upside down. And while horror is very similar to shock, it's still a very incomplete response. How about this one? Sorrow. Sorrow. The only one at this scene who had any sorrow is the thief. He understood the pain of the crucifixion, saying, not just, wow, that's terrible, but wow, that was for me. And he was literally experiencing the same thing, dialed back a couple notches. We sang a song last week that gets it for me. It says, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness, and melt my eyes to tears. There is an emotional gut-level response to the cross, but it still stops short. I think the fourth response is the one that Mark is calling his readers to, and it's the one that we ought to consider, worship. Worship. And I don't mean worship like singing songs or music, although that's part of it. Um, I mean a life of worship. 
And I think Paul, the Apostle Paul got this when he says, may I never boast except in the cross of Christ through which the world was crucified to me and I to the world, Galatians 6. That's it. Because if there's anything good in me, it's because of the cross. If there's anything virtuous or beautiful in me, it ain't me. I didn't do anything to deserve it, quite the opposite. I can't do anything to repay it. These hands are too small. I can never get my mind around it because my mind is too small and too tame. Isaac Watts, right? Brilliant worshiper says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. Everything I have, I count but loss and I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most. You realize we are charmed by vain things? Ugh. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Then here's the last verse. This is it. He says, were the whole realm of nature mine, like if I owned everything, if I had everything I wanted, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Do you hear the apostle Paul in there? It's the same thing, that same sentiment. We should be shocked and horrified and sorrowful, but at some point we need to move our life from an emotional response to an actionable response. What I believe about my life determines what I do with Jesus' death. Here's the second response to, or the second effect of the cross. The cross defines my identity. The cross defines my identity. The truest thing that I know about Brandon Marshall is that I am a terrible sinner saved by amazing grace. I'm a husband, a father, a son, a brother, a pastor, and all that. But beneath all of those things, I'm a sinner saved by grace because of the cross. All those other titles that would stick to me, were it not for the cross, are empty. But because of the cross, they have meaning and depth and purpose. So I seek to love Mandy out of who I am in the cross. I seek to lead my kids and love our kids out of what I am in the cross. I live out my calling because of who I am in the cross. And it's the same for you. Who I am defines what I do, not the other way around. Side note. How much more empathetic would we be to the spiritually immature among us or to people who are just checking out Jesus, maybe even ourselves, if we understood everyone as people who are just learning who they are in Jesus. Because we say things like this now. We say like, well, she's a gossip. Or he's just power hungry. Or she's just starved for attention. Or he's a drunk. Like, no, no, no. There are parts of me that don't know Jesus yet. Because on my best day, Right When I've had an incredible time in the Word in the morning and I'm loving Mandy with all of my heart and, and I'm loving my kids and I'm, I'm leading well and I'm caring for all my relationships. Incidentally, there's like two days in a hundred where all those planets line up. On my best day, I'm still a spiritual infant in his mid-30s who's still learning to step into who he is in Jesus. And you're the same way. And if you're tempted to think that identifying with the cross is casual or cute, then you haven't been paying attention to the news the last 24 hours, right? What's happening in Charlottesville isn't just sad or ugly or tragic. It is those things, but it's deeper than that. To suggest that Jesus only died for people of a certain skin color offends his majesty and undermines the sufficiency of the cross. 
And Christians who find our identity in the cross need to step into those things and say, no, this is wrong. And do it with courage and candor and love and grace. Third effect of the cross. Third one. The cross deserves my affection. The cross deserves my affection. Now here's where most of us stop. We get that the cross demands a response. We get that the cross defines my identity. But this next idea doesn't seem to sink in as deeply for some reason. The cross deserves my affection. So here's my story. I stalled out at this spot for for about 11 years. I could not get this. So I was saved when I was seven, but if I'm honest, most of what I would call the Christian life after that looked more like behavior modification, right? And so my thoughts went like this. I said, I know Christians are supposed to act a certain way, and so I would try to act that way. When I would inevitably fail, as anybody does, I'd say, okay, Try harder. And so I muscled down, I'd try harder, resolving that the next time I failed, it would be more private so I wouldn't embarrass myself. What's the cumulative effect of a life that's lived like that? Fear, not freedom. And it's not what Jesus wants for you. We don't grow because we're too busy managing our own image keeping up the appearance of Christ on one hand while trying to beat back sinful impulses with the other and saying, get back in your cave, right? And we're trying to do this brand management thing that never really works. And so we live with this fear that one day sin will sneak its way out of its cave and I won't be able to beat it back quick enough or or hard enough and I'll give in and then I'll be found out. Hear me. Jesus didn't die so that you could behave. Jesus died so that you could be new. There is a profound difference because behaving doesn't last, right? You need a new affection. So let me ask you something, if you, if you resonate with that at all. If you can imagine an opportunity where the sin that you want could be given you with no social consequences, no implications, no after effects, you could wake up the next morning like it never happened. You get complete immunity. Would you do it? Answer, not if your affections are changing. If you hesitate and say, really, I wouldn't get caught. It's kind of a tempting thought, right? Because if we're motivated by our behavior, what people will think of us, that doesn't drive any affection. That's my hands. Jesus is after the heart. It could be that the greatest single cause of anemic discipleship in the church today isn't because we're not involved or because we're not busy with Christian things, because we are, but because many people are content learning about Jesus with no affection for Jesus. We're infatuated with a Savior that we only observe from a distance, like examining something in a test tube. And I'm saying break the test tube. The gospel story of our life is increasing closeness to and affection for Jesus. If you want to know something really sobering, I'll just crank the knife another twist. That's not going to happen. My affections won't completely turn until one day when I'm at his feet saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Because he loved me before I was loving or lovable. 
Fourth one. Fourth effect of the cross. The cross directs my life. The cross directs my life. The life of a Christian ought to be simple, but hard. It's simple, right? Abide in Christ. John 15. Simple idea. That is terribly hard to do. Because I sin every single day. And so do you. Like a ship without a sail, unless I'm directed by the cross, I will lose my bearing and lose myself. And my life will drift. Why is every Sunday here a gospel Sunday? You ever notice that? Like whether it's, whether it's me or Dan or Dave or Ryan, whoever. Like the last couple of weeks, you've had like four different guys up here. Why is the same, it's the same thing. We just say the gospel. Why is that? Because there's not much else worth saying. I'd find something more creative if I could, but there ain't much else out there. There's no other truth on which to build, no other work that fascinates, no other message that motivates than the finished work of Christ on the cross for sinners like us, period. If the gospel ever gets boring to you, you're not believing the right gospel. We've got bookshelves and binders full of ways to grow, right? I've got them. I've got sermon notes from decades, and so do you. Christians struggle to see real traction in our lives. Why? Because the simplest thing is the hardest thing. Abide in Jesus. That's all he says. We do the opposite. Here's what we do. We invent complex ideas that seem easy. Example. We could start a sermon series on nine ways to a better marriage. Seven things you need to know about end times prophecy. And we could pack the place. But we don't do that. Why? Not because those things are bad or not helpful. They are, and they're good. But they're not essential. Doctrine matters, absolutely. Belief matters, absolutely. But affection matters, and it drives and directs those things. Here's a sobering thought. You could build a church and never build disciples. But if you build disciples, you will get a church. That's not me, that's Mike Bream. And discipleship is about what directs me. When you're directed by Jesus, your marriage will change. When you're directed by a love for Jesus, your prayer life will grow. When you're directed by a love for Jesus, your job will make sense. And so Martin Luther had this thing, right? The great reformer, they came to him and they said, surely we're ready for more of Jesus or more than just Jesus. This is the basics of the gospel. No, sorry, there is no more. Like, I've got the basics of the gospel. I understand all that. No, the gospel is not something to understand. It's a posture to take. There are no basics in the gospel, and there's no grad school in the gospel. And you know I love this song, but oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful, and my song will ever be. Like, I don't move out of that. It's not like preschool. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Here's why I love that song, because that's all I got. I want to sound like Paul when he wrote to the church in Corinth where he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, period. Why did Paul write that? Not because they couldn't use some help with their marriages. Oh my goodness. They were a young church living in a lecherous culture. It wasn't because they couldn't use some direction. They wrestled with the same things that we do. It wasn't because they needed a better prayer life. They had distractions too. Why did Paul write that? Because he understood that out of the affections of the heart flow all other activity of the Christian life. 
to train ourselves to be directed by the cross out of an affection for Jesus, that is a big thing. So in case you missed any blanks, here they are again. I know some people, if there's a blank missing, it's bad news. The cross demands my response, defines my identity, deserves my affection, and directs my life. So I have no idea where that t-shirt ended up. And no, I don't need a replacement. I started out by saying that what you believe about your life determines what you do with Jesus' death. What you believe about your life determines what you do with Jesus' death. There's three types of people in the room. And so I have one point of application. Here we go. Three types of people in the room. One, you've not responded to Jesus ever. And you may be a passerby, like a scribe, or like another guy next to him on a cross, but you've, you've kept them at arm's length. You've not responded. Two, you have responded, maybe a while ago, but you've gone cold. And like I was for a long time, just kind of stalled. And like bored, frankly. Third group, you have responded, and you have a warming affection for Jesus. And so here's my one point of application. It's terrible. Pastors are supposed to have like three that all start with the same letter. Here's my one point. One, just take one step closer to Jesus. Wherever you're at, take one step closer because you can never love him too much. You can't respond too clearly. And so as the band comes back out in a little bit, this could look like a catalytic moment for you where physically you come up and you just kneel for a little bit and say, Jesus, I want more of you. You could just say, I've grown cold and I'm tired of being cold and I want you to warm me up and I want you to wake me up. I'm asleep. It could be that you say, I've never responded and I need to do business with you today. It could be that you are blowing and going and having a great time in the Christian life and then you come down here and you praise him and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Stay where you're seated, but sometimes the physical is a catalyst for the spiritual, just FYI. Let me pray for us. God, we do love you and we are thankful for the breath in our lungs. We're thankful for the life that you've been given or we've been given by you as a gift. We don't intend to waste it and throw it away. God, we know above all things that you died so that we could be free, so that we didn't have to spend an eternity apart from you. But we get to be with you in heaven where we sing, worthy, worthy, worthy is he who paid a price that I couldn't pay. Father, we love you and we are so very grateful. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Please stand and join us.